So you're looking for a unique way to show off your company, organization, or event, right? You're drowning in unwanted branded pens, stress balls, and sunglasses? The guys at Keep It Simple Socks have the solution you're looking for. They are your custom sock experts based right out of Central Ohio, specializing in working with you to create and supply your own custom designs. Head on over to Keep It Simple Socks today. That's keepitsimplesocks.com today and get started on working with their designers on creating your own unique custom design sock to stand out from the crowd. Put your best foot forward with Keep It Simple Socks today. This episode contains explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. What you're hearing is one of the sounds that is distinctive to Columbus soccer culture. 3,000 black and gold clad supporters in full voice for 90 minutes. Those voices have been loud and passionate since 2008, when a confluence of various circumstances pushed multiple supporters groups into one corner of Crew Stadium. Collectively, they're known as the Nordeka, German for Northern Corner. The story of the Nordeka is one that coincided with the best season in Columbus Crew history. Perhaps the two could have occurred separately of one another. Perhaps not. But this much is clear. Crew games have looked and sounded a lot different since 2008. The Nordeka made an incredible impact, both on the field and off. It would be easy to dismiss a supporter section as just another group of fans drinking beer and shouting obscenities at the other team. But most players will tell you they get a lift from playing in front of fans who vocally support the game they're watching. And some of the people who led the recent effort to save the crew have also been involved in leading some of the groups that formed the Nordeka. The story of the 2008 season is partially a story of how crew fans turned a negative into a positive. And on this episode, we're going to look into how the Nordeka came together. This is the story of how Columbus won the cup. Everyone was pretty much sitting on the north end of the stadium, and we sort of made our home at 137, which is just right behind the goal. And so we moved forward with building the stage. We knew, because that's where the supporters groups had been, that, that we were going to have to figure that out. They looked like Argentinian fans, because they chanting the entire game. We're going to let these guys come in and take over our house. And I walked into something I've never seen at that stadium before. I mean, there was brawling, there was tear gas, there were guys getting cuffed. Now I'm looking back and people are holding their uh, crosses, you know, on their necks. There are more drops of terror. Episode 3, A New Voice. I'm J.D. Smith. There were definitely supporters groups around Crew Stadium prior to the 2008 season. One of the biggest was V-Army, but from the Wrecking Crew to Legion 04, there were always groups of super supporters at crew games. And it's important to remember their contributions to supporters culture in Major League Soccer. But for a variety of reasons, by 2006, many of them had either disbanded or were not very large. Going to see the same 30 people every week and basically knowing almost everybody by at least face or name. Um, and that was kind of what it was like at the time. It was very much the hardcores of sticking it out kind of situation. And, you know, I was in college at the time. It was a hard time getting, you know, trying to encourage friends and stuff to go with people just not biting at the time. That's John Clem. He's a longtime Columbus Crew season ticket holder and one of the founders of the Crew Supporters Union, one of the groups in the Nordeka. He's also one of the biggest crew fans you'll ever meet. In fact, he currently lives in New York, but he makes it to most crew home and away games every year. 
And yet, here he is talking about the support for the crew not being very good in the mid-2000s. Grant Thurmond, one of the founding members of the Hudson Street Hooligans, another Nordeka supporters group, had similar memories of the era between 2004 and 2008. We started in 2006. It was about halfway through the season, um, right during the World Cup. Um, we'd been going to games before that, and like we had a rough couple years. So 2005, 2006 were just bad. I mean, 2006, by, by June, I guess, at that point in the season, we were horrific. Like It was rough going to games, and just the atmosphere in the stadium wasn't what it had been previously. I think we all remember marketing efforts were not great. They didn't market at a high stage at all. The people we were trying to encourage them to market to. Um, so, I mean, it was really just people that had been around for a while. Uh, there weren't a whole lot of new people coming in. But that time period didn't dampen the spirit of the diehards. If anything, it emboldened the fans who were going to be even more vocal. Still, the fanatical supporters needed to figure out how to grow their numbers. Me and my brother were both at Ohio State at the time, and we had a friend um, who lived on Blake, which is right next, pretty much on the corner of High and Hudson Street. Um, so we got the idea, we were watching World Cup games, of just, hey, let's get some more of our buddies together and start making a routine and going to games. So we started getting our friends to come over to his house. We'd buy beer for everyone, and then we'd start um, pre-gaming there, march down Hudson Street to the stadium, pre-game some more, and then go in. Um, and at that time, Everyone was pretty much sitting on the north end of the stadium, and we sort of made our home in 137, which is just right behind the goal. Once I got to college, I ended up kind of moving over to the kind of old north end supporter section area with, uh, and made some friends in the Army uh, around 2007. The Army kind of disbanded, so it was me, Mike Blankley, and then uh, Kevin McCullough, uh, who's still very involved, got some buy-in from his you know, our friends and stuff like that that we knew were still interested and involved. And one of our guys happened to live next to Ryan Vestler, who was starting homage literally that same time and got us some sweet T-shirts and, and that those caught on and got some good circulation. That probably helped build our, our uh, I could say brand, but, our you know, our name recognition a bit. While crew supporters tried to figure out how to bring more fans into the stands, Mark McCullers, the crew general manager at the time, was trying to figure out how to make Crew Stadium more profitable. You know, we, we, we were obviously any business looking to be creative in our revenue streams. We hadn't really done the concert business that we had hoped uh, up to that point. And, and part of it was because it's so expensive to, to come in and build a stage in a stadium. Very expensive and sometimes prohibitive. The other thing that was happening was with some of the new stadiums being built, the capacity target in Major League Soccer at the time was 18,000. So laws of supply and demand, we need greater urgency, we need, you know, lower capacity, higher demand. So w when the idea came up to build the stage so that we could, we could host more concerts, Jermaine Amphitheater at the time was closing down. And so we moved forward with building the stage. We knew because that's where the supporters groups had been that, that we were going to have to to figure that out. But look, to be honest, the supporters groups at that time were – a couple dozen people at the top of the North stands. And I, I don't, I don't want to make it to seem that those couple dozen vans that were the supporters group were insignificant. You know, so we said that, you know, the heck with them. That was not the case. We knew it was going to be something where we're going to have to communicate. You know, we're going to have to communicate with all the supporters groups. Again, we're going to have to share a vision on how this makes us better and how, you know, we can have um, a more robust supporters culture. To build the stage, the crew front office would be removing 2,100 seats from the north side of the stadium. 
To put it mildly, the decision was met with mixed emotions. I mean, I get it. Given the circumstances, it made sense. I appreciate the fact that they were trying to increase revenue for the team. That would maybe then lead to better on-field product. But yeah, as a supporter and as a fan, it, it is a big open space behind the goal. And, you know, and the fact that it was where the supporters groups had been congregating for so many years since the stadium had been built, I, I did find that, uh, I guess, a bit frustrating that they, they would kind of take that space away. That was definitely disheartening, I guess. We had been advocating for this league and how, hey, it's getting better. A lot of things are improving. The uh, stuff on the field's improving. The players are improving. The atmosphere in the stadium's getting better. And then they're going to put a stage right where we're at. I mean, obviously, there were financial reasonings behind it. It's just a shitty situation. So we were pretty adamant that we wanted to be in 137. Obviously, that wasn't an option. So some of the front office, I know Chris Keeney, uh, Mark McCullers, Brad Kessler, and some of the people that we dealt with there, I think Scott DeBold as well, we all got together there and sort of hashed out how it was all going to play out. Actually, one of the ticket reps, Brad Kessler, kind of encouraged a couple of the group leaders to meet. I think it was important because Brad had previously been part of supporter sections before we were starting to work for the crew and, and definitely still had some of those connections to different groups and was always kind of the person who reached out the most to the different supporters groups around. At first, we didn't really, we all got along because the crew community was so small that outside of games, we were all going to the same bars to watch, went to Colada. So we hung out with a lot of people from Crew Union and La Tribuna already. But in game days, we all sort of had our own little unique environment. I mean, at the time, we were just a bunch of drunk kids enjoying the game. I think Crew Union was a little um, more mild manner in terms of just the atmosphere that they brought. And then La Tribuna had a whole different environment with the drums and the way that they carried on on their side of the field. So we all enjoyed each other's company, but we also liked the sort of space we had. I mean, I think there's always been the uh, external perception that the, the sports groups don't get along. And, you know, the, from a leadership perspective, that was that was never really ever been the case. I think the public personas, or at least what people associate with each group, allowed people to perceive differences. But, I, I mean, they were never really there. I mean, we've always kind of got along. I mean, it worked out well, I thought. But as that construction project took place, another problem was looming for Columbus supporters. I'll tell you what that problem was right after the break. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to The Cup. A great deal of this podcast talks about the head coach of the crew in 2008, Siggy Schmidt. But sadly, Siggy passed away on Christmas Day of 2018. Many of the people you hear on this podcast were interviewed before Siggy's passing, or really even before many of them knew the issues he was dealing with. Still, everyone that I talked to spoke highly of Siggy Schmidt, and as you'll see throughout this podcast, his impact on soccer in the U.S. was tremendous. Siggy's family has asked that those who wish to honor his memory do so by donating to the men's soccer program at UCLA, and I think that's a great idea. Donations in memory of Siggy Schmidt can be directed to the attention of Emily Lerner of UCLA Athletics at 310-206-3302. Or you can email her at elerner, L-E-R-N-E-R, at athletics.ucla.edu. I hope you've considered doing that, and we're all going to miss Siggy. Thanks for everything, Coach. Before we dive back into the 2008 season, let me tell you about Keep It Simple Socks. Three reasons why you should check out KeepItSimpleSocks.com. Ready? Number one, they like this podcast and they wanted to sponsor it. That's enough for me, but if you're still not convinced, fine. Here's reason number two. 
They make ridiculously comfortable socks that make your feet feel as if they're being kissed by angels. I mean, I, I'm just guessing on what the angels thing would feel like, but they're super comfortable is the point. And reason number three, they made these really cool saved the crew socks. So if you're not sure which ones to buy, that's a great start. Plus, they're based in Columbus. They have a ton of really awesome sock designs to choose from. Again, comfort this podcast. They made the Save the Crew socks. What's not to love? Keepitsimplesocks.com. Easy. There was rumor of you know, Toronto coming down with you know, 2,500, 3,000 fans. Really, that was an opportunity to, to throw down the gauntlet and say, we're going to let these guys come in and take over our house. And our supporters answered the bell. Toronto FC began playing in Major League Soccer in 2007, and they had a terrible first year. They only won six of their 30 games in their inaugural season. Not surprisingly, TFC fans wanted to see more wins as soon as possible. And with the drive to Columbus being a manageable six hours, Toronto supporters group saw the opening game of the 2008 season as an opportunity to flex their muscle on one of the league's founding members. Naturally, crew supporters did not want to let that happen. Leading up to this, all we heard about was freaking Toronto bringing 2,000 people down. They were going to overtake our stadium, and it was just going to be this big thing where it was a freaking MLS love fest with Toronto. And that's all we heard about. So I think it was the common cause of saying, fuck this. No one's going to come in to our stadium and do that. So I think that's what led to all of us sort of coming together. I mean, obviously, there was a lot of stuff with the front office. We had to do that, but I think the common cause of just being like hey this is our stadium and we're not going to let this happen here with an opposing team that's been in the league for freaking 10 minutes at the time was going to come down here and show up and just take over our stadium steve sirk author of a massive season book about the 2008 columbus crew along with crew legend dante washington took in the gathering of supporters before the game so i'm watching the game with dante we're we're in the upper deck right at midfield so we're like equidistant right you know the nordeca is kind of in the corner to our left on the far side of the field and 2,000 toronto fans have filled up the entire south end so and maybe we even were a little closer to the toronto fans and we just kept we're just like wow like you know because for years like other teams I mean, especially the fire you know they'd come in you know i mean they only knew like one song or chant or whatever but they would be loud and you know they would kind of drown out you know our fans a lot fire fans would get snarky about it and call it like firehouse east i mean and the fire wouldn't bring two thousand people you know now these toronto people show up with two thousand people i mean they filled up the entire south end of the stadium and all those supporters that got you know, scrunched together in that corner one unit now, now you know kind of you know, with their voices amplified together it was kind of awesome because it was like the first time it was really like wow like the crew fans are drowning out the other fan well, the hooligans were towards the front of the section in the front row. I think that's where I was standing next to I think my brother, Drew, and uh, John Wendland, and some of our other friends were in the front row right there. It wasn't full to the top, but it was full enough. And everyone just, instead of fill, like, filling in like to the top, everyone just pushed down. So it was like you were on the actual, people were standing, and they were standing on the seats. Then some people were standing on like, the top of the seat backs so there's like three rows of people just all compressed so i don't know how many people it was we got that first moffett rocket and i almost fell over just because of all the pressure of everyone pushing forward on us and it was awesome it was like holy shit this is really really is awesome and then when ollie got the second goal it got a lot quieter at the other end 
Moreno came over to the corner, and I think that led to pretty much almost every goal that season that they came back over to that corner, and it became a pretty awesome celebration between the club and the fans. You could feel it. It was like, wow, this is something. Because the narrative going into that week was like, oh, Toronto's going to take over the stadium, and it's going to be like this raucous pro-Toronto crowd. And going into the season, it's like, okay, these are two like non-playoff teams, and these Toronto fans are going to come down and just drown out the Columbus people. And and it it didn't turn out that way. And and the I mean, the fans were amazing. And afterwards, and you talk to the players in the locker room, they were all like, wow, that was, that was incredible. You know, and they they felt it and they thrived on it and they encouraged it. They were just like, whatever they're doing, like you know, keep doing it. You know, because it's again, it's new. You kind of you wonder, you hear that there's good support coming or they're bringing all these buses down or something like that, you know, but you've heard that before. Once again, former crew player Duncan Outen. Oh, Chicago's bringing 20 buses or we're taking 20 bus loads to Chicago. Then you get there and there's like, man, what was, what did, did, did we have 20 buses with one guy in each bus or what? You know, like, but they, they I mean, look, they bought the heat. Good, bad, or indifferent. I couldn't give a crap. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Like, as a player, you want that. It just creates that environment that you want to play in front of. There's just an edge to the atmosphere, and you just you get that. I'm, I'm getting it now. I'm getting tingles. Like, remembering that stuff, man. Like, when they came and they were there and those things are happening, the guys on the field, you know, talking about it after, you can just see it in their eyes. Like, that's where you want to freaking play. Like, that's that's what Columbus, those fans kind of were part of us as well, you know. So did Toronto form the Nordeca? John Clem says not so much. I still think the Nordeca happens without that, but I think it was definitely a little bit of uh, extra, maybe a little bit of extra fuel in the fire, but not. it didn't start the fire. I think the announcement that the teams are kind of coming, the sports groups are coming together into one section, I think was kind of the biggest move. And then, you know, over time, you know, later through the season, at some point this morphed into like Toronto invented the Nordeca. Once again, here's Steve Sirk. Don Garber himself even, you know, was making comments about like, oh, yeah, you know, the those crew fans came together after the Toronto fans came down and, and like, embarrassed them, and they knew they had to pull it together. And, be, and I was like, no, that isn't. To the extent that Toronto had a role in it was they talked a bunch of crap leading up to the game, which I'm sure played a role in crew fans making sure they, you know, kind of had it all together and were, were fired up and ready to go. But that afternoon they they won the day that day one other thing that came out of that game was another rarity for mls in those days a skirmish between the fans crew fans weren't fond of all the jabs toronto fans had taken at columbus before the game toronto supporters weren't thrilled they had traveled hundreds of miles to watch their team lose yet again so as both supporters groups exited the grounds tempers flared like, let's call us a smaller market, you know, whatever, call it what it is. It's a great market because they just bled with us. And literally that day they did. You know, there's a few crack, crack noses and stuff up there in the stands. You know what, I'm sure if you could have asked our guys on the field to go up there and stand with them in the fight, probably at least half the guys would have. I tell you, I would have been up there in, in two seconds. I should have probably, I would have been more useful up there than I was on the field if I, if I ever played. <laughs> Yeah, it turned into a little bit of a, a little bit of melee. I mean, that's a long way to come to not get a result. So, it's probably not a big shock that Duncan Outen and the Hudson Street Hooligans found out they had a lot in common. Uh, Duncan, obviously, he was just awesome. He was always uh, supportive for the Hooligans. He would 
Uh, there was a couple times where he'd wear a hooligan uh, jersey under his jersey, and he would take it off after the game, come over, hang out. A couple of the guys did that. Um, there were times when we had the bar, like Chad and O'Rourke would come in. Just a lot of those guys we would see around, because they were at that point those guys were were sort of in our age range. Well, you know what I mean. So we were all similar ways. They were breaking into the MLS, and we'd been supporting. And at that time, that's all we cared about. I mean, we ate up every little fact we could get about these guys, where they where they went to college, what anything it could be. It was just um, getting that connection between the players and the supporter groups. It is a unique market, and the fans have always been so awesome. And those guys were, to me, the kind of at the pinnacle of the fans. You know, we always go back to the Nordic and talk about it. It's not that we're discounting every other fan in the stadium because they were all awesome, right? But these guys were someone that just bought that, like the adrenaline shot that I told you about before. You know, it just gave you that injection in the arm. So these were guys, I wanted them to keep doing that. You know, I wanted, if it meant going and meeting them and it just so happened John and Grant were freaking top dudes you know like I'm bodies with them now you know Grant was at my wedding that's how close we became because yeah again common interest the Columbus crew well obviously I love the Columbus crew they love the Columbus crew soccer our friendship kind of grew from just getting to know them then being at events and it was like dude I actually want to hang out with these dudes Sundays you know when the team wasn't having a get together I'd go hang out have some chicken wings and watch a football game with these dudes and every now and again there was a couple of soda soda pops involved another person who enjoyed hanging out with the supporters groups crew head coach at the time Siggy Schmidt yeah Siggy was a great guy I mean him he would come in um on those Thursdays before home games the Rubies and um him and some of the front office staff were just available to talk to the fans they would sit there and uh Scott would buy rounds of drinks and we would just sit and talk soccer. He was a really easy person to get along with, easy guy to just pick your brain. Like, obviously, I don't know many head coaches two days before a game want to sit and freaking have 30 fans analyze <laughs> your tactics. But, I mean, it was it was something that he didn't shy away from talking about. It was just a good dude all together. Another important part of the supporters groups of the Nordeca is La Turbina Amaria, or La Turbina for short. You've never been to a tailgate at Crew Stadium until you've gone to a La Turbina tailgate. While other supporters groups focused on how many beers they could drink or how many fans they could pack into the section, La Turbina focused on bringing the percussive backbone of the Nordeca. Turbina truly tied the Nordeca together. The robust support from all the supporters groups in the newly formed Nordeca was not lost on the players. They they were a big support from day one with me. Here's Gino Padula, left back on that 2008 Columbus Crew team. They looked like Argentinian fans because they chanting the entire game. Um, there was a, a very good connection also that year because the Nordeca, not just the Nordeca, the entire stadium see the entire team play for the fans and we feel like we have the entire city behind us support us and that was unique I never see that connection never again it's because I think they appreciate what they effort uh, not just me the, the, that team did for the city you know um, but when you receive this kind of support um, you feel like you do something good for, for the fans and for me in any club 
the most important thing in any club are the fans. Because players, you can change players every year, you can change coaches, but the fans, they always stay. While the fans were bringing a new element of support in the stands, Siggy Schmidt chose a bold tactic on the field. He moved defensive midfielder Danny O'Rourke to a new position, putting him at center back. That move came with a lot of risk. As a defensive midfielder, O'Rourke had the luxury of taking chances and occasionally dropping a hard foul on an opponent to slow down an attack. But if a center back was to do that, the foul could very likely happen in the penalty area, and that would mean a penalty kick and or sometimes a red card. The move created some uncertainty as the season began. Okay, you know, Danny's famous for basically just killing people. And now you're going to play him at center back. It's like, well, how's that going to work? Earlier in the year, that was not going well for Danny, right? You know, he had to learn a new position. He had to learn that he just can't, like, maim anybody that gets near the ball. And he struggled at first. And there were penalty kick calls or, you know, maybe plays where he didn't make the right read. So, I mean, there were there were things to learn. And, and I know it was frustrating, you know, for him at the beginning of the year. But, like, he just – I was always impressed by just how he just kind of kept at it, right? Like, he could have gotten pissed off or why am, I, why am I not playing my real position? Or, you know, he could have done any of that stuff. But – I remember there was a game and Brian Dunseth was here broadcasting. Danny and I were talking in the tunnel before the game. And, you know, when he saw Dunny walk by and he called Dunny over and then it was just like instant, like coaching stuff. Like he's just picking Dunny's brain. Okay. As a center back, when this happens, what do I do? You know, picking his brain, like right there on the spot, just trying to get another perspective, you know, from a guy who played in the league for, you know, a, a good long while. And, and then sure enough, you know, by the second half of the season, Danny was doing great. Not only did the fans question the move initially, Danny O'Rourke himself had concerns as well. I'd be lying if I told you there was there wasn't doubt. I mean, for me, the the I think the biggest thing was the the mindset of switching from defensive midfielder to the center back. I, I was into the mindset, and I, you know, the past you know decade or so, of going in there and trying to win every ball possible, and then uh, give it to the the Guillermo's and the Eddie Gavins and the Robbie Rogers, Brian Carroll to try to create from there. Um, you know, so. You know, once I got there, I, I was still trying to win those balls where I had to learn to kind of be more patient, uh, learn how to defend as a team, being able to hold their attack without trying to win the ball. So that, that took a while. I was always under the, you know, the, the tenet of wanting to do whatever it took to help the team win. Winning for me was the most important thing. Like, you know, everything else kind of fell into place, whether it was, you know, what I wanted individually as a player or, or, or monetarily or anything. Um, it was always whatever it took to win the art of defense, which I think is sometimes lost these days was, was kind of what I was studying and, and trying to aspire to. So moving back to center back was just, it was difficult. Obviously, I think there was a lot of, uh, you know, a big learning process for me, especially in the first uh, couple months of doing that. But I trusted Ziggy, uh, trusted his eye and, and what he was trying to bring to the team. And uh, it eventually uh, worked out that way. I mean, playing, I was playing in between Frankie and Chad, so anybody could have been successful in that role. It just happened to be me. The crew started the 2008 season with a bang. They won six of their first eight games and looked to be flying. It was one of the best starts in team history. And then they got some bad news. Adam Moffitt, the young midfielder who had been one of the main catalysts to the hot start, suffered a sprained right knee during a 2-1 win over Kansas City on May 3rd. The injury was minor, and it only kept him out a few games. Unfortunately, he went on to injure his left knee during the comeback, and that injury was much worse. 
Moffitt suffered a torn ACL that would keep the young Scotsman sidelined for the rest of the season. An injury to one of the team's best young players would have been a big blow to most teams, but not the 2008 Columbus crew. Not that Adam Moffitt wasn't important. He certainly was. But Siggy Schmidt had done a great job of building in some really solid contributors who could step in at a moment's notice. For example, there was Emmanuel Ekpo, a midfielder from Nigeria who would help his country win a silver medal in the 2008 Summer Olympics. He played in 20 games for the crew that year. Or there was Pat Noonan, a veteran MLS player who had previously starred for New England, one of the best teams in MLS over the past five years. Andy Iroh, the sixth overall pick of the 2008 draft, was a 6'4 English defender who added needed depth at the center back position. Then there was Jason Gary, a Louisiana goal scorer who was just as happy on a boat fishing as he was on a soccer field. And then we get to Brad Evans. Evans would be the one replacing Moffat in the crew lineup. Though he didn't see much action in 2007, his rookie season, by 2008, he would be counted on to provide stability in the midfield and he handled the pressure flawlessly. It was a role he'd come to be known for, as Evans would go on to eventually be a captain later in his career. We had a team full of captains. That's Frankie Haydick, the guy who actually was the captain of the 2008 Columbus crew. That that was it, and you you didn't see that uh, ever. I mean, Will Hesmer was a captain, uh, Brian Carroll, captain, Danny O'Rourke, Chad, captain. I mean, these guys are these guys are captains. Uh, Guillermo's a captain. Alejandro's a captain. There was so much balance in that team. It wasn't like one guy was getting everything, you know. Everyone contributed that year in the exact way that Ziggy had planned up. The 2008 Columbus crew had plenty of talent on the field and even stronger bonds off of it. That team just got along together so well. Just up and down the, I guess, you know, the bench, if you will. I mean, so many of those guys were like that. They were just good dudes who worked hard and, Everyone kind of just reveled in the success of the team. Yeah, in this day and age in the MLS, and even back then, um, I, I think it's you're hard-pressed to find a locker room as good as ours. And uh, I think that's one of the things that, um, that Ziggy was very good at, was finding not only good players, but just good, good overall locker room guys where it just clicked. When I played in France before I moved to the crew, I would like to be honest with you, I didn't want to go for practice because I, I didn't enjoy it. And when I moved to Columbus, I couldn't wait to go to practice because I woke up happy. I went to training. We training hard, but at the same time, we enjoy. Uh, when we have to work hard, we work hard. And when we have to have fun, we have fun. So that was a very good mix. So this is, I think, one of the keys is that happening with any person in any job. When you enjoy your job, you can give 110%. And when you are not happy, you can do your job, but you cannot do properly. The team's bond was a key factor in allowing them to overcome adversity. After losing Adam Moffitt, the crew went on a three-game losing streak, which sounds bad. But it was their only losing streak of the season, and they'd only lose three more games total between June 14th and the end of the regular season in October. That's a span of 19 games. During that summer, as the crew were gathering momentum, they played a friendly against English Premier League team West Ham United. The score of that game, where both teams played many of their reserves, was 3-1 for the Hammers. But that isn't the important part of the game. The most important thing to come out of that matchup happened in the stands. 
West Ham United is known for having some of the most, hmm, how do we say it, intense fans in all of soccer? I think that works. One of their supporters groups or firms in English soccer terms is the Intercity Firm. That group is so notorious, they actually had a fictionalized movie made about their exploits in 2005 called Green Street Hooligans. It's actually not a terrible watch. It's got Elijah Wood in it, believe it or not, and Roger Ebert gave it a decent review, despite some terrible fake British accents. Anyway, when the world-famous ICF met up with the Nordeca, well, it led to an international incident. I'll let Grant Thurman from the Hudson Street Hooligans explain what happened. We actually hung out at Ruby's with some of the West Ham fans the night before. Pretty cool guys. I think one of them might even ended up staying at John's house because he lived like right across from Ruby's and ended up sleeping on his floor. Just to clarify, Ruby's is the campus bar otherwise known as Ruby Tuesday, not the chain restaurant. And John, in this case, is John Winland, one of the other founders of the Hudson Street Hooligans. So we hung out with him. Everything was cool. What led to a lot of like the stuff was we were the Hudson Street Hooligans. We were the Hudson Street Hooligans because our friend lived off Blake when we started. So we'd walk, Blake was like two feet from Hudson, and then go straight down Hudson to the game. We were hooligans just because we were a bunch of drunk idiots who like soccer. That was where the name came from. But at like that time, there was a Green Street hooligans movie that came out, which was about West Ham supporters. So all of a sudden, we were these like douchebag wannabe hooligans. And so like that was the big thing. So they like started talking shit to us about that. Had nothing to do with that. I don't like. I don't know anyone who would fucking start a supporter group on an Elijah Wood movie. Like it didn't make any sense. We're like, we get it. It's a fucking street name. We would have been anything. Like, we get it. Uh, but I think that led to some of just the nonsense outside the stadium. And then as the game went on, there wasn't much until a couple of their fans just like one dude ripped his shirt off and like came down the uh, stairs, and we were like, what the fuck? This is our corner. Like at that point, we had owned it by then. By that point. It was ours. That was the middle of July. So by then we had a few months together and that was our, no one was going to come into our section and disrespect us in our stadium. So I don't think it was a ton of craziness. I mean, there was some pushing and shoving, some drunk punches thrown, some people silly string those guys. Like there was dumb shit that went on too. It wasn't like an all out brawl. It wasn't freaking anything crazy like that. I know it, it led to out, some stuff happened outside where I think there was some more fighting that went on, but within the same, it was pretty mild manner. Some people got held up, but yeah, it was like, a chance for like on an, playing a, an EPL team, having them come here and just disrespect. I don't care who you are, how long you've been supporting your club. This is our team. This is our city, and you're not going to come into this corner. The fight leaked up from the stands onto the main concourse, where the police became involved. Multiple people were put into handcuffs, and law enforcement used mace and pepper spray to control the crowds. Sean Mitchell, the crew beat writer for the Columbus Dispatch, remembers the scene. I walked out of the press box, and I walked into uh, something I'd never seen at that stadium before. I mean, there was brawling. There was tear gas. There were guys getting cuffed. And so, you know, my story turns into <laughs> chaos at Crew Stadium. Yeah, I, that was no joke. I mean, people think that got blown out of proportion. No, I saw it. I mean, I was right there. There were people getting pepper sprayed and uh, and punches being thrown. And, uh, you know, there's just this mass of West Ham fans. I remember them walking down the concourse uh, towards uh, the Nordecki. And, and there was stuff going on in the stands, too. But, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was an interesting day, for sure. On the main concourse above the Nordecki, crew and West Ham fans gathered to watch their fellow fans be detained. They also started chanting things at each other. 
the crew fans got in a good jab here. The next day, reports of the fight made national news in England and the U.S. The headline in the Guardian newspaper in London said, Football hooliganism hits the U.S. That could have been viewed as bad PR for the crew. Instead, Mark McCullers says he took an alternate view of the situation. Frankly, I was very proud of it, you know, to, to be honest with you. I mean, that's, that's, what, that's what you want. That, that's what I wanted. I wanted people that wanted to fight for their club and fight for their community. Now, maybe not literally, but it, it told me something about the heart, you know, of our, of our fan base. Yeah, I, I wasn't surprised. It, it was, I mean, it just showed, you know, where we were going. The team itself sort of buried its head in the sand and just ignored it. Like, I don't know whether they wanted the official line to be that this didn't happen. I don't know what you're talking about. It was very puzzling to me that at least say something that, uh, yeah, yeah, we're aware and took care of it, blah, blah, blah. They didn't say anything. So in hindsight, knowing that McCullers was kind of secretly happy about it or proud, uh, that explains a lot. The funny thing that happened from that was the following week we were away at Colorado. So me, um, Sean Kelly, and my brothers, Corden Garrett, drove out there for that game we only had like two days so we drove out slept for a couple hours went to home depot made a bong beer bong beer bong so we get to the stadium at like i don't know 10 a.m and uh there's no one there it's just commerce city first off i had no idea it wasn't in denver we're like out in commerce city out in freaking no man's land so we end up hanging out and then like their fans start coming into the stadium like or into the parking lot and come and hanging out with us. They're like, oh, this is sweet. Like, we're just raging idiots, and they're loving it. So we go into the stadium. The crew score in the first half, so we're just, yeah, nothing crazy. Pretty soon, like, two police officers come down. Um, they're, like, some event staff person comes down and is like, we're not going to have another West Ham here. You guys have got to leave. At this point, now we're, pit, like, freaking out and, like, what the fuck? What? West Ham? We didn't even do it. Like, what the hell are you talking about? West Ham? This is like a national trap like nothing happened like it was a freaking friendly where a couple people got drunk and swung at each other like i don't know how it like turned into a west ham like that was a thing now so they kicked us out of the game we went to like this little we walked because obviously none of us could drive at this point we walked to like a trucker bar that was within walking distance and watched the second half which was a pain in the ass to even get the game put on so we're walking in looking like we're drunk as shit in like a freaking trucker bar in the middle of Colorado asking to put on a freaking MLS game. They, they could see the stadium and they were like, we eventually got, we, I think we had to buy a round for the bar and then they let us have one of the TVs. At the time, like, nothing we did matter. And now all of a sudden the whole country is like, something like Columbus support is so crazy that now we've got this like national recognition. I think that was like a week after that game and we're just like, what the hell? That game in Colorado ended in a 2-0 victory for the crew. It also highlighted the talents of William Hesmer, the crew goalkeeper in 2008. And William Hesmer had the game of his life. Corner kicks were, I don't remember, like 17 to nothing, I think. And the crew committed a bunch of fouls, too, so there was like all of these restarts. There were like 17 corner kicks. I mean, it was just like under siege. And... And William Hesmer just, he made like six or seven saves maybe. But all of them were, were like spectacular, right? And I just remember that game. It was just like, what, how, like, how, 
how do you win a game like that? <laughs> you know? Um, so that, that one stands out just because William Hesmer, you know, it still may be like the greatest single game, you know, performance by a crew goalkeeper. You know, that or Zach Steffen in the, the playoffs in 2017. It's kind of out of character in a way just because he didn't need to do that very often. But then you kind of know, it's like, well, I guess he's got that in his back pocket. You know, you, that's, that's a guy that, you know, if there is going to be a game like that, you know you can walk away with a win. Hesmer's stats for that game are truly staggering. He faced 17 corner kicks, 16 shots in the second half alone, and somehow managed to keep a clean sheet. Once again, when called upon, one of the most unsung heroes of the 2008 season made plays when he had to. Patrick Golden, the editor of MassiveReport.com, remembers the legacy of William Hesmer. I think he gets lost in the in the annals of crew keepers because you have uh, you have some outstanding characters. You have Brad Friedel at the beginning. You have a guy like Zach Steffen in there. You have a um, a club legend in in John Bush. You know, someone who's who's real emotive, and and Will Hesmer is is very business oriented. He's very get the job done. Um, he, he's a uh, an intellectual keeper, if if that's if that's something, and that it's not showboating. It's uh, he'll make the physical save when necessary. He'll 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 be able to make the leap. He'll he'll be able to make the dive. But really, it's being in the right position and working on the positioning and keeping things uh, quiet. You didn't see the big save necessarily because he already got into the right position. He made that defense better because he could see the plays opening up in front of him. He was really vocal. He can make sure that uh, Danny or Chad or or Frankie or Gino were in the right position and uh, made things easier for that back line, I'd say. Despite the success, the crew were able to somehow keep an even keel in the locker room. Maybe that's because they adopted the attitude of their star forward, Alejandro Moreno. And then, you know, I mean, famously late in that season, you know, Ale's mantra, you know, do what you do. Don't, you don't have to do everything. You don't have to try too hard. You don't have to just do what you do, and and everything will work out for us. And so that just kind of became their their mantra. You know, was just do what you do, and they did. As the crew headed to September, they faced a humongous test in the New England Revolution. Regular season game that probably most stands out to me is that New England game. Yeah, September sixth against New England. The teams were pretty close at that point, and New England. You know, he'd been to three straight MLS Cups at that point and like four of the previous six or whatever it was. You know, they'd kind of been the standard bearer in the Eastern Conference for quite a while. And, you know, they and the crew were kind of neck and neck throughout most of the summer. New England comes into Columbus, you know, big game, and the crew just curb stomped them. I mean, it was four to nothing. And Jason Gary came in as a sub. Gijay pulled him aside and he was like, when I get the ball, you run here. And the first time Gijay gets the ball, he just... Turns around, spins, hits. I don't even think he looked. He just got the ball turned around, spun, hit it where he told Gary to be, and sure enough, Gary ran onto it, breakaway goal. And I remember Gary after the game, he's like, "Hey, he just told me, like, just when I get the ball, run here." And he's like, "I did. I got a goal." I was like, "All right, I'm listening to Gijay, you know." And he got another one, like in the second half, same thing. Like Gijay hit it where he told him to go. It was just like season over right there. I mean, yeah, that just that basically just ended the East, and, and not just to win it, but I mean to just destroy them. Yeah, it was a statement game, and it was a heck of a statement. It was kind of almost like the, the launching pad for the, the rest of the season. In my opinion, the best game we played that year include playoff against New England at home. I, I don't remember I enjoyed a game like that night. I was talking with Robbie Rogers one, like a month ago and with some of the former players. 
and everyone agreed that was the best game we played that year. We looked like <laughs> Real Madrid because we passed the ball, we moved the ball well, we, we could score more goals and we really enjoyed. So that night, um, I feel like we, we can win MLS. We feel like nobody can beat that, especially at home. The following week, the crew traveled to Toronto, a game that resulted in a 1-1 tie. The black and gold stayed the night that Saturday and flew back to Columbus the next day. Or at least, they were supposed to fly to Columbus the next day. But the plane never made it there. In early September of 2008, Hurricane Ike tore through Haiti, Cuba, and eventually hit the Texas coastline with devastating force. On September 14th, as the crew boarded their flight from Canada to head back home, the remnants of that storm were headed towards the Ohio Valley. I'll let Frankie Haydick and former crew PR director Dave Stephanie describe what happened on that flight. It was a commercial flight. You know, in actual practice, it ended up being, you know, not, not quite a, not a charter, but we had the vast majority of the seats on it. It was a, about a 30-seater uh, prop plane. I want to say it was... I don't know, maybe nine rows, two and two, with like a bench across the across the back. I'd never been on a plane like this in my life, and I'm I've flown on planes. You know, my mom's a flight attendant for American Airlines. She was a flight attendant for 45 years. I've flown uh, since I can remember, and I've never flown on a plane right there. So we were all going, "What the heck is this? No way!" And I already don't feel good <laughs> about the flight. I'm already going, "Gosh, I can't believe we're even on this plane." I don't think that. The storm was forecast, projected to, to move that far north with that kind of intensity at that speed, or I don't imagine they would have, that the flight would have taken off. And so I don't remember there being any discussion or concern in advance. And, and it was not until we were pretty close to Columbus when it started to get bumpy. And then it got bumpy. <laughs> 30 minutes in, 40 minutes in, there, you know, we get the, there's a couple like, you know, a little wind gusts and whoa, a couple woos, and, and everyone's, whoa, their stomach goes. Well, those woes became, whoa, 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 way more and more. It just wasn't stopping. And we were dropping and shooting to the side, and it wasn't just a drop. It was a drop where the whole entire plane went, ah! Oh, you know, you get that, and here's me, kind of, you know, I'm, you know, feel, I'm you know, a couple beers in me, and I'm going, oh my gosh, what the? And we're not only dropping, we're, it's feeling like the wind is taking us um, wherever it wants. And there was the plane. There was moments where the plane was almost, you know, not sideways, but about as sideways as you can get. And you know, it was a wind gust taking you, and the plane had almost, what well, you felt, no control. And um, luckily, you know, you had you know, some unbelievable pilots in there, but uh, there were times that, uh, you know, and this is now a half hour, 45 minutes in, and now you're having half hour, 45 minutes of this, just dropping, going back and forth. And uh, I'm starting to look back and now people in the beginning, you know, people are kind of laughing at it, oh, roller coaster, and you know, I'm doing that. And now I'm looking back and people are holding, you know, um, their uh, crosses on their on their you know on their necks and the the woes and the, and the drops are not um, fun drops anymore they're more drops of terror uh, I, I was remember going oh my gosh is this 
I, I, I gotta be the guy that's, you know, that's, that's, hey, keeping stuff, stuff going because I'm looking back at Eddie Gavin. He's green. I'm seeing another late win of crying. And there was other, uh, it was a small plane. So it was our team and maybe like 15 other just random normal people. Uh, I was like, dude, if this is it, I'm, go I'm gonna go, and I'm gonna pretend it's like a roller coaster ride. And I did that for as long as I could, but near the end, it, w it was, I, I was quiet. But they did make multiple attempts to land and ultimately decided that they that they were not going to be able to. Um, we were kind of coming in sideways. William Hesmer was uh, had a, 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 a aviation background. I think his father might have flown, and, and uh, uh, he, he referred to it as crabbing, which I wasn't familiar with at the time, but I, was, I remember that ever since, that he introduced uh, me and probably others to the concept of, of crabbing. And... Uh, that's what we were doing. I mean, and it was, and they made a couple of, they made a couple go arounds and we got pretty darn close to the ground a couple of times. I mean, I remember seeing trash cans getting as close to where you could see trash cans being blown around, um, in people's backyards and wasn't a good feeling. This was drop a hundred feet, then boom, fly to the right with your wings going, you know, you're, you're kind of sideways going and then another drop and then maybe five to 10 seconds of peace where everyone can hear nothing, but the plane and whoo, another drop and wah and I'm, I'm telling you it was it was non-stop uh scariness there's people you know now there's people throwing up and people are holding each other's hands and everyone's sweat and the back row was their heads down i'm like what is going on there were some people getting sick including a woman who worked for the airline and at the beginning was kind of poo-pooing it and trying to make everyone everyone uh feel better and assuring them that it was normal and by the end she was she was uh <laughs> at the other end of the spectrum shall we say <laughs> couldn't land uh turned around and went back to cleveland and it was bumpy it was bumpy all the way back up north to cleveland so it even continued it continued north so i think it just you know i i, I don't know from a from a forecasting standpoint how how they missed on that one as as uh badly as they did but uh um, it was uh, it was not it was not a comfortable feeling being up there in those I don't know maybe four it was probably forty five minutes and I just remember landing and just going oh my god and everyone cheered and people were like hugging each other I remember getting off the plane and the pilots going um, there was you know to the pilot they could, well that was fifty fifty and I was like wait what wait what we all got on the ground and kissed the ground and hugged each other. Took a bus home from Cleveland, and yeah, <laughs> we got a, we got a, you know a few uh, 24 packs. I mean, a few 24 packs of beer on that bus ride home. You know, when you have that type of moment as a team, uh, it's unexplainable how, how much how, how it, it bonds you um, and how close you become. And you know, there was we were in the near death experience. I felt with our whole team and it bonded us like no other and after that moment it was like man we conquered that and we got by that we, we can do anything as they return home many of the crew players just like much of central ohio remained without power for a few days the storm had knocked out electrical lines throughout the region so naturally the crew could be forgiven if they had an off game the following thursday when the new york red bulls came to columbus Instead, a national TV audience got to see the crew dominate the Red Bulls. Tonight, an MLS Eastern Conference match goes on as scheduled. 
Alejandro Moreno leads the first place crew against dominating striker Juan Pablo Angel and his New York Red Bulls. And even though they got dominated, New York actually got on the scoreboard first. Now it's 11 versus 10 for New York. Angel with a shot! Oh, Angel scores the goal! And New York leads! What a free kick by Angel! That's a stomach. So the 2008 crew got down by a goal in a regular season game. That's something they did all the time. And a lot of times they came back from those deficits. And this night against the Red Bulls would be no different. Except the comeback goal would actually be one of the most controversial in crew history. Noonan. That's deflected to Hayden. Hayden. Long shoots. He's chipping Conley. Frankie Hayden ties it in one. Although, at the same time, Frankie Haydick will be surprised that that went in. That goal from Frankie Haydick looked, for all intents and purposes, like he was passing the ball. Like he didn't mean to do it, basically. So, Frankie, did you mean to chip the goalkeeper, or were you trying to pass it to a teammate who never got there and the ball just went in? Upper corner chipping the goalkeeper. And if you and the reason I say that, and the reason I can back it up is because if you ask the guys that year when we do shooting practice, because it was, uh, you know, I didn't have a hard shot. My whole career, I didn't learn how to really shoot the ball, which is unbelievable until I was about 33 or 4 years old. That's when I really learned how to actually drive a soccer ball because, um, to be honest, like, uh, you're supposed to just know that. And um, no one ever really taught me, hey, this is how you drive a soccer ball. So that year, I knew I couldn't show. I didn't have the laces shot like these guys had, like the Moffitts and the Brad Evans and uh, the Robbies and the Eddies where they can hit it with their laces and just literally knuckleball a ball into the goal. When I tried that, it went. it was a field goal. I remember specifically in my mind – I thought I was in the middle of the goal. And I just did my same shot that I always did in training. Just, hey, the cross shot, just cross it in, cross it into the goal. If I were actually in my mind really where I was, I would have never taken that shot. But in my mind, I was right in the middle of the goal somewhat because I was I was excited to be in that area. Uh, that's why I, I shot it like that. So I'm still a little bit bummed because I, right when it left my foot, I knew it was going in. And I, I should have been – I wanted to turn – I remember going, should I turn around? Like almost thinking really quick, I should just start turning around and running because I knew it was going in. But I, like I said, it, it, was a, it was a shot that was a cross. It was a cross that was a shot. But I had been doing – that's how I shot the ball. Will could tell you because I did that to Will almost every training, you know, was and it wasn't as much as a of a chip as that particular play was. But I, I, you know, I had the cross shot down. I would say that everything was going the crew's way during the second half of the season. In the final 15 games of the year, the crew only lost three of them. As they reached the middle of October, Columbus had a game in Bridgeview, Illinois against the fire. Crew supporters such as John Clem traveled to the distant Chicago suburb, and they hoped they would see the crew clinch some hardware. Yeah, we had a good section, and uh, you know it was one of probably our biggest road trips to date. Chicago was the, the big trip. With three games remaining, the Columbus crew had 53 points. The only team that could catch the crew in the race to win the Supporters' Shield, a trophy given to the team with the best record in MLS, was the Houston Dynamo, who had 46 points heading into the final three weekends. To clinch a supporter shield in Bridgeview, the crew needed to beat Chicago or have both Houston and the crew tie, or they could have Houston lose. See, supporter shield math is complex and difficult. The crew in Chicago played to a 2-2 draw, so the supporters couldn't exactly pop the champagne just yet. 
However, on the way home, they started getting word that Houston was tied 0-0 with DC United late in the game. The earliest versions of the Noron tour decided to pull over and check their phones. On the way back, I mean, this is 2008, so we're talking phones that don't have quite the capabilities that we have now. So you're you're kind of in, in finding MLS scores. There was no MLS app yet, right? So it was kind of people getting text updates on what the score was for those games. Um, we happened to take a rest uh, stop and somewhere outside Indianapolis. And, and, you know, basically everyone was kind of gathered around a couple people that were getting text updates, just waiting to hear how the final score was going to come out for that game. D.C. United did a good deed for the crew as they held Houston to a scoreless tie. That was just enough to, to win us the uh, shield. So, yeah, first trophy, first trophy in four years. And, um, yeah, we definitely popped a couple bottles of champagne that people had stuffed under the bus to celebrate. That was a lot of fun. As it turned out, the crew would play D.C. United at home in the final game of the regular season, which was convenient. You see, D.C. had won the Supporters' Shield the past two years, which meant their fans had the trophy in their possession. So the United fans just brought the trophy to Crew Stadium and handed it over to the Nordeca. So they actually brought it up. Uh, they had a bus trip. They were coming up. They came up. They brought the shield with them to uh, to transition it to us. The timing worked out obviously very well. They were not interested in participating on an on-the-field thing beforehand, though Though they were asked. I would probably be in the same boat and not interested either. So um, I at least respect them bringing the trophy for us to do a presentation beforehand. But yeah, it was me and Hard Hat Mike for uh, Crew Sports Union. And then I know we had Hudson Street Hooligans, La Trevina, and I feel like there were a couple other kind of random people that were ripped into it. But yeah, I had a quick thing before the game. I mean, it was a good crowd. Last home game in the season usually is. And then just to be able to kind of walk walk that uh, trophy over to uh, the Nordic was, was awesome. Um, it was a great feeling. It, um, I know Frankie now kind of does that with uh, the military people all the time. But at that point, we hadn't, we hadn't really, that wasn't a normal thing for people to kind of walk over. And then we kind of set the trophy in front of the Nordak and walked up into the stands, and that was that was fun. The fact that it's the supporters' shield was awesome because the supporters got to hold the trophy and a group of guys and girls that had been so passionate, you know, the, the Nordak um, section and everyone else involved, in the, you know, all the fans, but I'll refer to them because they just, through thick and thin, they were there, and it was great to have something they could lift as well. You know, we we felt the honor. We felt it was great, but it was cool that they, you know, that that's kind of how it's presented. I think Columbus needed that, deserved that. Um, and as a group of guys on the field, it was an honor to bring that. The crew had amassed 57 points and 17 wins in the regular season, both of which were club records. Guillermo Barros-Skiloto led the league in assists with 19 and was named most valuable player. Skilotto, Robbie Rogers, and Chad Marshall were all named to the MLS Best 11, basically like saying they were first-team All-Pro in NFL terms. Marshall was also named MLS Defender of the Year, and the man who helped craft this star-studded lineup, Siggy Schmid, was named MLS Coach of the Year. Clearly, his plan was coming together nicely. However, the playoffs were ahead, and Siggy Schmid didn't come to Columbus just to wear puffy jackets and lose the games that matter. But everyone also knew how the crew had fared in the playoffs the last time they got there. So as the crew made their way towards MLS Cup, they'd have to overcome their past, both off the field and on it. Stay tuned for a quick preview of next week's podcast. 
But first, I want to say thanks again to all of you for listening. The feedback continues to be super helpful and encouraging. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at The Cup Podcast and tell us what one of your favorite memories of the 2008 season was. Additionally, thanks for all the ratings and reviews on all the podcast services you guys rock. Keep them coming because that helps other people find the podcast. And as I've said every week, I'll continue to do it. I cannot say enough thanks to my wife, Melissa, who's basically kept our house like from falling over while <laughs> I've been working on this podcast. So when you see her at a crew game, tell her thanks. I also like to thank Todd Markowitz and Cody Welling here at 97.1 The Fan. They believe in this project, and they've been tremendous. John Zadar deserves a ton of thanks. He did all the artwork for the podcast episodes that you see, as well as our logo. You can follow John at the Zadar, Z-I-D-A-R, so make sure you follow him. A big thanks also goes out to all the guests who have given their time to help tell this story, but especially Steve Sirk, who is a tremendous resource in all of this. If you enjoyed this episode specifically and you'd like to find out more about some of the in-game action that went on during the 2008 season, you need to go check out A Massive Season, his book, which you can buy at CircBook.com. And you can read tons of other stuff he's posted there, too. It's tremendous. I also need to thank Victoria Beckman, who helped with translation on parts of this podcast. She's also a privacy and cybersecurity attorney at Frost Brown Todd, so if you're needed for that type of legal advice, look her up. And finally, all game audio has been provided by Columbus Crew SC, as well as ESPN. Lastly, we are proud to welcome Keep It Simple Socks as a sponsor. Huge thanks to them for getting behind this project. Evan's going to tell you more about them, and then you'll get the preview of next week's episode. Thanks again. So you're looking for a unique way to show off your company, organization, or event, right? You're drowning in unwanted branded pens, stress balls, and sunglasses? The guys at Keep It Simple Socks have the solution you're looking for. They are your custom sock experts based right out of Central Ohio, specializing in working with you to create and supply your own custom designs. Head on over to Keep It Simple Socks today. That's KeepItSimpleSocks.com today and get started on working with their designers on creating your own unique custom design sock to stand out from the crowd. Put your best foot forward with Keep It Simple Socks today. I remember sharpening my, my studs before the game um, because we were playing against Blanco. Man, there was so much on the line that that game felt bigger than the world. For me, that was the game of the playoffs. Oh, I felt nothing but dread. We got to play the fire. That's our rival. Historically, never had much success against them. The kick in the nuts potential for this game was like astronomical. You know, you felt bad for the guy as a human because he is such a good guy. But he was wearing Chicago Fire Red. I have that. 